0: This podcast is a presentation of uctv.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover uctv podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Thank
1: you everyone for uh, wonderful presentations. My co-chair Jerry and I would like to welcome everyone in the Q&A section. We have several sections from the uh, questions from the public that we want to Go over next. Okay, the first question we have is for Pascal Gagnon. And the question is uh, What is the evidence that we lived in small scale societies for most of our history? And to what extent did this limit our ability to accumulate and spread knowledge?
2: Thank you very much for this interesting question. I would say the the evidence is is twofold. One is the archaeology that, with no evidence for even small settlements older than 20,000 years and no evidence for domesticated plants or animal species uh, until about 12,000 years ago. And then the second uh, evidence is from present-day foraging people who are natural fertility uh, populations that live completely off the land where birth intervals remain more than three years apart, a very, very high infant mortality, so there simply was no way to maintain population numbers as you then start seeing after agriculture in the last twelve thousand years. so that would leave small groups now how big these social networks really were that is another question and and that relates to the second part of the question. The, the spread of knowledge, even relatively small group that live today in places like the Kalahari um, are they keep they keep in touch with people 200 kilometers away. And they tell stories about people who live that far. So they might act, actually have been for these formative hundreds of thousands of years of small scale egalitarian societies, a, an impressive degree of of exchange of information and knowledge that might actually have contributed to these cognitive capacities that do not require schools and the teaching of math and everything we you know we bore our kids in school with i'll leave it at that
3: thanks pascal our second question is for robert Clodner. robert a tremendous talk uh the question is um what is the difference between um center embedding and just mere symmetry? Because, you know, there's lots of symmetries in nature, both in body form and in things like termite construction and so on. Um, you know, how, how is that distinctive from uh, from uh, center embedding? Um, yeah, that's
4: a really good question. Um, so that the way you would define recursion is that um, for any given pair of elements, um, the second one has to call back to the um, the first one. It has to refer to it in some way. So you can think of it in terms of a computer program, um, in terms of bracketing. And in fact, um, one of the most recent studies that, was, uh, that just came out at the beginning of the month um, actually uh, replicated an earlier study from two years ago that actually worked literally with brackets of various types, curly brackets, uh, parentheses, uh, square brackets, um, angle brackets, and so on. Um, with uh, the most recent study was done with crows. um, And it was found that crows were able to um, do the matching. So there has to be a a dependent relationship between the prior element and then the recurring element later. Um, And uh, actually Stahl, when he first proposed this based on his study of Vedic ritual, um, it wasn't just symmetry that he was proposing. It was based on actual um, identity, partial identity relationships, at least between um, different rights and uh, sub rights um, that occurred in different uh, portions of the sequence in this kind of um, symmetrical fashion. But the later um, occurrence would call back to the earlier one. And that's sort that's of the- uh, really like, helpful.
3: You know, I had the same question myself. So it's re-entrance symmetries is the way to think about it. That's the recursion factor. And it's not just layers of symmetries. Thank right. you so much.
1: Our next question is for Evan. Uh, Among the about 1,500 genes that have undergone structural changes, do you see genes involved in neuropsychiatric disorders other than autism, such as schizophrenia, depressive disorders, etc.? Do you see any implications for the evolution of the neuropsychiatric disorders in humans compared to
5: non-human primates? I mean, there is an enrichment, at least for the segmental duplications, uh, for genes associated with neurodevelopment. Uh, interestingly enough, there isn't actually a strong association or enrichment uh, across the neuropsychiatric disorders. So it's not as if we see a, a general one-on-one relationship that the genes that have structurally changed between chimps and humans are also the genes that are responsible for, for neuropsychiatric disorders and autism uh, in humans. What I will point out, and I think it's, it's relevant to the question, is that many of the duplications Uh, that I talked about that involved uh, essentially the birth of new genes that are specific to humans are actually creating susceptibilities to rearrangements that are associated with autism, uh, schizophrenia, and neuropsychiatric disorders more broadly. So, for example, one of the gene families that's expanded in chromosome 16 is one that actually promotes one of the most frequently associated CNVs that's found in association with uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, the same holds for autism. Um, one of the gene families is expanded very close to the centromere. Is a gene family that creates essentially the second most common fo- form of autism in the human species. And what what I think is most interesting is that that architecture, based on our you know reconstructions of the Neanderthal genome, does not exist. And so this is a very recent expansion within the human lineage and the common ancestor leading to all modern-day humans. Thank you, Evan. Great.
3: Uh, next question is for, for Anne, for Anne Stone. Um, so Anne, in your talk, you you uh, made the point that most uh, genotype-phenotype cor- correlation data uh, is, is carried out on European or, or populations of European descent. And uh, the question is, uh, you know, why is this the case and how can we remedy the situation so that the data set becomes more representative going forward?
6: I think um, it's really because of the focus of biomedical research in European populations and in particular, um, you know, to really get at complex phenotypes, you have to have enormous population sizes. And so um, countries that have socialized medicine and large databases and then have put forward the funds to, really um, sequence, uh, genome sequence, a large number of a large percentage of the population have really given us the the best data that um, inform us about these phenotypes. Now, as an anthropologist, sometimes the phenotypes that I'm interested in are not necessarily represented fully, right, since these are biomedical, um, but they are our Best sources of data, really. Um, that is beginning to change. We do have projects that are um, focusing on people of other ancestries around the world, um, but I think it'll take a. The g- genome data is, is better represented, although there's there's still issues there. Um, it'll take a while for the phenotype data to catch up.
3: Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
6: Uh, Sarah, the
1: question is for you. If the majority of variations, about 85%, are within populations rather than between populations of about 15%, why are humans classified by race using the small between-population differences?
0: And the short answer is they shouldn't be, because race doesn't correlate with a genetic variation, at least race as it's defined in the U.S., So, historically, race has been defined based on a combination of social, sometimes behavioral characteristics, strongly influenced by the culture at the time, um, and also biological characteristics, things like skin color, for example. We know that's a terrible way to classify people. It doesn't correlate with so-called races, because it's simply an adaptation to different UV environments. But um, historically, again, race was used to justify often hierarchical Um, stratification and really horrible abuses that occurred. And so it really is a social construct, doesn't correlate at all, or doesn't correlate well I should say, with patterns of genetic variation. And I'll say just as an example, there was um, a classic study done by Noah Rosenberg and colleagues where they looked at global populations and they used something called structure to infer genetic ancestry. And it looked like the genetic The inferred ancestry correlated in a way that may correspond with uh, so-called races in the US. But when um, I, for example, expanded that study to include many, many more Africans, and then other people expanded to include many, many more non-Africans from very diverse populations, that broke down. We no longer saw this classification by continents or by so-called race. In fact, there can be more variation between populations in Africa than we see globally.
3: Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Next question is for Dan Geshwin. Dan, it's a, it's a kind of complicated question, but let me let me walk through it. Of course, you talked about how human brains have expanded not just in size, but in uh, complexity at the level of, of neuronal connectivity and at the molecular level, as you explained. Um, and the question has to do with the way in which this growth occurred evolutionarily. Um, And, you know, so how did this expansion occur in a sort of progressive fashion evolutionarily? And then here's the kind of provocative part of the question. Um, And does this say anything about the regions that are most susceptible to neurodegeneration, to decay through uh, through aging and and other processes?
7: You know, I focused, and I think we know most about uh, potential, you know, models and mechanisms of cortical expansion based on, you know, on neurodevelopment. And so... Um, and in fact, most of the kind of size and connectivity expansion that has to do with um, the expansion of the um, layers two and three, the superficial layers that connects across the two hemispheres and long range parts of the cortex involved expansion of progenitors and progenitor pools in this um, outer subventricular zone, most likely. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence for that. And I kind of focused on that since that's something that we understand mechanistically. And I think the, the um, you know, the message there is that um, part of the regulation of those genes, which are highly constrained, as you know, I think uh, Evan, you know, pointed out somewhat in his talk, you know, we're talking about very constrained developmental genes that and predisposed to neurodevelopmental disorders, they're also the the areas that regulate them. It's kind of almost a um, yeah, it's not really a paradox, but the fact is that um, those uh, the protein coding sequences of those genes are under a lot of constraint, and yet the regulatory regions or seem, seem to be what have evolved the most rapidly. So that's what I kind of focused on. But I think that, you know there are many many mechanisms, and in fact the Mechanisms of the molecular adaptation and expansions aren't really that well understood at all, Um, and and it's probably a number of different – it has to be a number of different um, mechanisms from the kind of structural variation that Evan talked about to, to changes in regulatory variation
3: thanks Dan you know is it is it reasonable to hypothesize that those are last to devol- evolve or the first to generate and if it's if it's more the regulatory networks that that's where you know some of the challenges are in neurodegenerative disorders
7: well you know if you actually partition the heritability that we have now in the current state of neurodegenerative disorders across the genome they don't seem to coalesce into these very very constrained um you know human evolved uh, elements like the HARs or HGEs. It's the developmental disorders that do. So So I think it's something else, um, you know, um, something fundamentally different. And one of the things we have to recognize is that, you know, we can put mutations that cause many um, human neurodegenerative diseases into mice and, and they get a phenotype that's extremely similar. So um, it's not every case, but many, many of them so a lot of the mechanisms are, of neurodegeneration are likely to be very conserved, um, not all, but, but, but many, um, and involve kind of basic cellular processes such as protein, homeostasis, et cetera. Very good. Thanks so much.
1: Um, Carol, the next question is for you. Uh, are genes that con- are controlled by GATA3 transcriptional activity also controlled by other transcription factors? And how might genes that are controlled by multiple transcription factors be affected across different types of primates?
8: That's what we, I think a lot of people are studying that. So there's a lot of unanswered questions as to um, how many transcription factors, um, what happens when multiple transcription factors uh, uh, during evolution, or during uh, control different genes in different species. With regards to GATA3, uh, there are, uh, GATA3 is part of a family of transcription factors um, that have a specific uh, a binding site, and um, there are other members of the family, uh, GATA1 and GATA3, GATA2, uh, that are also uh, known to bind to very, very similar sequences. Um, with reg- with regard to our uh, um, experiments, we didn't see exp- uh, uh, expression uh, of uh, um, get out one or two, so we don't really um, know what these genes are um, um, responsible for doing. At least in 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 our the brain cells that we generated from um, humans and non-human primates, because the expression of those genes, so those genes are present in the genome, but they are not being expressed at levels that were uh, detectable. But um, there there might be others. Uh, um, there might be other genes that are binding to similar sequences as GATA-3 uh, does, and that's something we will uh, further investigate. Thank you.
3: Okay, next question for Terry Sonowski. Terry, I love this question. You, I think you're going to know why. So you talked a lot about the large language models and their ability to self-train. And the question has to do with has, has uh, anyone begun to take the next step where those um, those large language models evolve in a darwinian sense. you know there was this uh, evolutionary programming branch of ai and then machine learning branch one but can machine learning start becoming darwinian in you know in, in, in an actual darwinian sense of population dynamics.
9: you know that's a fascinating uh, possibility and uh you know there have been people who have, have not within large language models but within the field larger field of neural networks have have developed these these models which uh require a different uh context a different way of uh, of 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 being built right now these networks are built you pick the architecture of course that evolves uh, in, in animals but then we, you, you have experiences, which means you have data, you're learning something. But they, they don't have a developmental period, right? They don't develop. And, and that's really what you'd like if you want to evolve something. I think it's a lot of that are developmental genes that were discussed earlier. Uh, and, and there are a few uh, researchers out there who are uh, actually incorporating development. Into this, the 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 uh, construction of these networks, in in the context of locomotion uh, of how how to evolve a creature that can crawl toward a goal, and uh, and so yes, the answer is that uh, that, that there is a, a branch of of uh, machine learning that is incorporating development and evolution, but it's not mainline yet. But I th- I think it's going to be an important component. I I think that. <clears throat> in the future, AI will have to develop, you know, have a period of development just like the way that we have uh, a long childhood.
3: Very good, thanks so much.
1: Johannes, the question for you is the following. Uh, You highlighted the importance of finding new fossil sites. Many fossils have been found in the East African Rift Valley, which offers favorable conditions for preserving and finding fossils. Uh, What other African regions do you think will become important for finding hominid fossils in the future? And what about Central and West Africa? So, yes, what
10: we have currently is probably limited to South Africa and uh, Eastern Africa. But there are also sites in Western Africa. There are also sites in Northern Africa. So it's about, like, how many of those sites have we found so far? Otherwise, early hominids have been living in a lot of places within Africa as early as like 300,000 years ago or even before. So their distribution must have been much wider. It's just that those sites where this early hominids may have lived are not exposed. The sediments are not exposed and that's why we're not finding them. Otherwise, we have some evidence from North Africa, some from West Africa. So I would say that they must have occupied most of Africa. And if the right sediments were exposed, We would have found some uh but it's just the geological phenomenon has not exposed a lot of ancient sediments in most parts of africa
1: thank you
3: okay a somewhat provocative question for pascal so pascal you talked about how both biology and culture have, have shaped the course of human evolution uh of course we now live in the technocene as well as the branch of the anthropocene. So how is technology and in, in particular medical advances where we're changing the actual hardware that runs the software that uh is, is human culture? Um, you know, how do you think now the intersection of biology, culture, and technology is going to shape evolution going forward? When when the singularity comes, will evolution stop or accelerate? I, I've added that part to the question. <laughs>
2: very provocative and a huge question uh i might start with a joke that we might hop into the evolving learning machines and then you know then you don't need the biology anymore which begs the question who builds the machines but i think that there's actually there's been a concern for you know ever since western medicine existed and people started thinking about the genetics uh of you know allowing people to survive and reproduce that would be very unlikely to do so without medical intervention There, the immediate answer is that the vast majority of humans alive on the planet, you know, don't see doctors, have no access to a lot of that advanced biomedicine. So you might even go as far as saying that the genetic insurance for humanity is with the populations that are not changing the effect of deleterious mutations. These effects are still, you know, they curtail uh, survival and reproduction. This being said, clearly in, in the more opulent parts of the world where people have enough funds, where there is a technology that is accessible to many people, many of us hope to live much, much longer lives and not succumb to you know, endless numbers of diseases that have killed our ancestors in absence of such, such medical advances. I'd like to point out, though, that the connection between technology and biology, we've, we've heard from Dan Geschwind um, uh, and from Evan Eichler, how the genetic architecture of our intellects and our minds seem to be really, really fragile, right There is countless way before you even born prenatally where biological variation in a period of time that's almost untreatable right who is who is drugging pregnant mothers it's It's not really happening it's just so risky, and there the biology plays out. So I think we're very far from uncoupling our biology from technology. And I think the, the, the dream of using technology to escape the biological constraints has happened to, you know, to some effects, especially for rich societies, but we're very far from it. So that would be my attempt at answering this, this really, really good question.
3: I'm, I'm relieved we can at least sleep tonight. <laughs> so thank you.
1: I was about to say, to say the same thing, phew, all right. Uh, Robert, the next question is for you. Uh, spoken language seems to have an important difference compared to written language. In spoken language, you cannot refer back to a previous part of the sentence unless committed to memory. Do you have comments on the difference between center embeddings in linear domains like spoken language and domains that allow for random access like writing, visual arts and so on?
4: Um, I oversimplified both things just for lack of time. But, um on the spoken side, um there was a really interesting occurrence in last week's um, Saturday night Live, cold open, um where Mikey Day um had to read just one level of embedding off the teleprompter and clearly had to rehearse it because it was every candidate Trump backed, lost last week. Um and if you think about it, it's fairly, straightforward, but just because of the center embedding, he really struggled with it, clearly, um, in rehearsal at least. Um, And it's sort of interesting, you could say, oh, well, it could be from a phonological perspective, it could be the fact of having three primary heavy stresses on monosyllabic words, trump, back, loss. It starts to sound like a list of words and the syntactic structure just disappears. So we could say it's that. It doesn't seem like that's a working memory problem because things aren't that far removed um, in space or time. Um, But, you know, we can fix it in various ways that don't have anything to do with either working memory or time. So, for example, if they had just put in a complementizer, that, as we call it, every candidate that Trump backed lost last week, all of a sudden the syntactic structure is, like, back again. And there's other ways of fixing it as well. So that's one side. On the written side, it is true that there's more center embedding in language that's written than in spoken language. But even there, um, you can start to see that languages have come up with devices to sort of massage the structure um, to lessen the burden, even in writing and reading where, you know, you can look back and backtrack and so forth. Um, and that includes, you know, um, use of, for example, subject-relative clauses rather than object-relative clauses um, at the most deeply embedded level, Um, using sort of generic head nouns for those relative clauses, like people, persons, things, someone, things like that. Um, And there are other devices that are used in writing as well that seem to lessen um, the burden. So it's not just working memory, and it's not just the time. Um, There's there's more stuff going on, and that's currently under investigation, in part by my, my graduate student, Emily Davis.
3: Great, thanks. Yes, next questions for for Evan Eichler. So, Evan, uh, you you know, you talked about the duplicated regions and their relations to uh, the the development of the human brain. And, of course, very appropriately, this is an anthropogeny symposium. uh, But the question has to do with um, other effects of the duplicated regions not related to the adaptations of intelligence in the brain, Um, in particular you know the fight against pathogens right which is what did our ancestors in or i would add to that you know the fight against uh, trauma right so when i look at bowl a2b and iron homeostasis maybe that's all about just hemorrhage and not so much about the brain so you know how how do you kind of balance the you know the driving forces here uh, those that are cognitive related versus those that are just surviving the pathogen and surviving the gash in the leg
5: yeah for sure i mean let me just start by saying that i'm both anthropocentric as well as probably neurodevelopmental centric in in my perspective, right? But having said that, when we look at the genome, it's an unbiased view. And I will say that, uh, and it's been known for at least 25, 30 years, that the immune response genes are some of the most structurally variant regions in our genome. Um, The one thing I would say to that is that they're structurally variant in almost every genome that we've looked at. And we've looked at many outside of humans. Uh, so they, they show a lot of variation. And obviously every mammal has to survive pathogens. And so it makes sense we have that. I, I think you know, there are some really interesting things that we saw when we started looking at duplication patterns in chimpanzee. Uh, in fact, some of the strongest signal comes from immune response genes, uh, as opposed to neurodevelopment in the chimpanzee for chimpanzee specific. And it's not just gains, it's also losses. So there's some observations that were made even when the genome was sequenced that there are interleukin genes that are completely lost in chimpanzee and bonobo that are present in all other apes. So there's some really specific uh, events that have happened uh, to actually change the immune uh, repertoire in each of our genomes. Uh, The other thing I will say to that is also there's really remarkable examples that go back now 50 years almost in terms of really unusual patterns of selection that are very deep, like balancing selection over the HLA locus. And there that involves both diversity in terms of the single nucleotide variation but also complex structural variation events. Um, so for example, when we were sequencing the macaque genome, one of the things that came up when we started to sequence the MHC regions is we started to see very large expansions of genes that are not expanded in any other primate um, which begs the question you know when people think of these primates as interchangeable models in study of, of research, uh, in particular in terms of Inflammation and immune response genes. What does a, a much larger, more complex set of genes in the MHC regions in the in the macaque do for that as a model with respect to human disease? But yes, short answer: lots of variation, uh, specifically in immune response genes, and there's even huge amounts of variation between individuals in the in the human population.
3: Very good. Thank you.
1: Um. Uh, the question is as follows. Uh, your research involves understanding how diseases such as tuberculosis emerge and evolve. Could you please expand on how ancient DNA research on diseases could inform us on how we prepare and respond to global health crises such as COVID 19? And how can this knowledge be applied to global health policy?
6: You know, science gives you information, policy is what you decide to do about it. And often those two don't seem very closely related. Um, But I think, you know, when you use ancient DNA to study pathogens uh, and you add that time dimension, um, I think you very quickly develop a One Health uh, perspective. So you think about um, how the pathogens um, move not just among human populations, but um, uh, among uh, us and other species. So tuberculosis uh, is caused by um, the Mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, a group of, it's basically the same thing, but they have different names if it's in a different species. Um, But any of them, if they infect you, you're diagnosed with tuberculosis and you're treated the same way. And what we see Um, From ancient DNA, like from many other pathogens, is a history of exchange back and forth among species um, and movement of pathogens with our trade routes, but also with interactions with other species. Um, You also quickly see how much the increased density, population density with agriculture um, has influenced um, pathogen. Uh, patterning and exchange, and and so tuberculosis was thought to be a really ancient pathogen, uh, but all of our genomic data now suggests that it probably jumped into humans in the last 6,000 years, so since agriculture and not before, Um, but there's a lot of areas where we we need to know more, and we can also get a, a good sense of what the variation in some of these pathogens was like prior to vaccination and prior to antibiotics. And those can give us insights into the biology of the pathogen and potentially treatments. But um, how that's going to impact policy, um, one would hope it leads to greater support for surveillance. Um, but we'll see. Thank you, Anna.
3: Next question is for, for Sarah, Sarah Tishko. Sarah, I actually had this the same kind of question brewing in my mind myself because the medical literature is confused about the effect of increased activity of alcohol dehydrogenase, right? Because more ADH activity means more acetaldehyde, and that means pain, right? That means hangover. That feels bad. So is, is the effect of having increased ADH um, to prevent you from drinking too much alcohol because you feel the pain? Or is it literally just you're, you're you're clearing alcohol, you're you're lowering your B, your blood alcohol level, and so you can actually <laughs> ingest and metabolize more. So now let me get to the specific question. I think it's really a fascinating one. So thank you, questioner, for this. And this is I, I've never heard of this before. But tej, I guess it's pronounced or te or tej t e j, is a traditional Ethiopian drink made from fermented honey. And the question is, could the resistance to alcoholism in Ethiopians be related? To the drinking of tej, so it's now that that general question, but now tied to a specific cultural question. So please, thank you.
0: <laughs> right, that's a great question, and we asked ourselves exactly the same thing. We that was originally what came to our mind was this drinking of these fermented beverages and even foods that are common in that region, and that the truth is, uh, we really don't know. <laughs> I mean, nobody people have speculated a lot, but we really don't know what the selective force is. But what I will say is that in my entire career, I don't think I have ever observed as strong a correlation between a, let's say a haplotype, it's really a haplotype that shows this um, signature of selection, and the practice of, you know, some subsistence practice, right, in this case, it's agriculture or a correlation with diet, let's say. Um, As we observe at this locus, and the only other example that I can think of, it has to do with lactose tolerance, so mutations that um, regulate the expression of the gene lactase. I was frankly really shocked (laughs) when we saw this and what a strong correlation there was with diet, even when you control for people, groups that have the same genetic ancestry. Whatever it is, it's a really strong selective force. It's somehow correlated. Um, to agricultural diet, but as I mentioned in my talk, there is um, very strong selection. You see this extended haplotype, and there are many different variants and genes that have important roles, often pleiotropic roles. They can affect different traits. They, one of the genes that also um, has a variant showing a signature of selection can influence lipid metabolism for example. And it could be, therefore, that there could have been selection on one of these neighboring genes, and this got dragged along. It could be a combination of these different variants on the same haplotype background, which is, frankly, what I think is probably very likely. And so, as we know, begin to know more about people do more genotype phenotype studies, and you figure out what is the impact of these different variants and these different genes um, on phenotype, we're going to learn more. But at this point, it still remains a really interesting question.
3: So stay tuned. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Uh,
0: Dan, um,
1: the question is, you mentioned that human accelerated regions are genetic regions that are changing faster on the human lineage compared to other primates. Uh, Because of the rapidity of change, are these regions more susceptible to maladaptive outcomes?
7: If I understand that correctly, one's asking, is there something, is it kind of like Evan's Thing where these regions actually become more susceptible, um, you know, around these human duplications or uh, structural variations. And I don't think that is, is really known. I certainly don't know that. But I want to clarify one thing around that. The, we find that those regions are regulating, it, at least at a first approximation to the best we can tell, globally, genes that are under a lot of constraint that are expressed very early during fetal development and that are really conserved um, across mammals. And so the notion is that that the genes themselves are gonna be very susceptible to loss of function mutations in them and they'll also be susceptible to changes in their expression as well, but that has less less of an impact. Another thing that kind of happens is as genes, a lot of these neurodevelopmental genes, you know, the average brain gene, I think has about six enhancers or so, maybe a few more, you know, it depends how you want to assign them. Uh, they, But, but you know, and these are regions that, re- that regulate, positively regulate those genes. Um, a lot of these developmental genes have more. Um, and so the point is, there's a lot of redundancy in the regulatory, and maybe not redundancy is Is not the right words because we don't really know, but each gene has many regulatory regions, and so that a slight change in one of those regulatory regions might affect a phenotype, but it's not the same as a change in the sequence of that gene, which will be expressed right everywhere that that gene is expressed in every context, whereas a change in a regulatory region may have a more subtle effect at a particular time in a particular cell type. And so it actually gives you, you know, one could think a little
3: bit more buffering from that perspective. Great. Thank you. All right. Our next question is for for Carol Carmanchetto. So, um, so... You know, human and, and ape, ape brain, other other primate brains develop similarly, but as you so clearly show, it's just beautiful data with the iPSCs. Uh, you know, it's the tortoise and the hare, right? So the 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 it's much slower to develop uh, the, the level of neuronal activity in the human uh, iPSC derived neuronal cells, but of course they reach a higher level of activity, and that's just the general pattern. Um, the question is, um, you know, how do you explain how this evolved? How how this difference in pacing evolved? Uh, and why is this difference in pacing uh, a benefit to us? Now, you gave a specific example about GATA three transcriptional regulation, but but how did this all come about in a stepwise selective advantage manner?
8: There is a lot of research uh, on on that, and um, the the actual evolutionary origins of human neoteny are still a topic of a lot of discussion. Um, so we know that neoteny in humans is the slowing, the definition is the slowing or delaying uh, of uh, uh, development compared to non-human primates. Uh, and that results in the retention of the ju- some of the juvenile characteristics. So some of the features related to neoteny in humans compared to non-human primates are physical features, such as we have a large head, a flat, a flat face, relative short arms, we look juveniles uh, compared to the other non-human primates. So some suggest that those uh, characteristics um, could be could be bringing some advantage because we were not perceived as, as aggressive or as uh, um, challenging to to other uh, individuals that didn't have these uh, characteristics. But there is a lot of this very speculative uh, uh, discussion.
3: Very interesting. Thank you.
1: Terry, here's a question for you. Um, the, there are a lot of arguments for and against claims that large language models like Lambda and GPT-3 are sentient. What capabilities or characteristics, in your view, are critically missing, uh, which, if addressed, would perhaps allow a future AI to be rightfully deemed sentient?
9: That is a topic which is under uh, great debate right now. and um there are. I've written, by the way, a uh, archive paper specifically on that topic. So if you're interested, just Google archive and Sanofsky and it will pop up. Uh, but the, the, very briefly, uh, the problem is that we, we can't agree amongst in the field a proper definition for sentience, or for that matter, you know, people argue: Do, do these large language models understand what they're saying? Right, or are they intelligent again? Those words mean you know the different things to different people. Consciousness there's no scientific definition of consciousness, there are, there are many, many uh, pro- properties that you can assign, but you know, there's no real way of, of measuring it. Uh, well, except when you've um, obviously you lose consciousness, but. <laughs> Uh the, the 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 and really here's the problem the problem is if you take any of these words you know se- sentence you look it up in a dictionary what do you see a bunch of other words you look those words up it's all circular it's not based on any fundamental scientific uh you know basis that is uh that, that you know and, and for me what a scientific basis would be something where you have you can tie it to ground it in specific uh, maybe neural circuits or maybe in uh, uh, m- even molecular, uh, uh, you know, uh, signaling pathways or some- something. Uh, and ultimately, what we'll probably have is a mathematical under- uh, definition for all of these words. But right now, it's uh, it-, it really illustrates, I think, how little we really understand about these words that go back to the 19th century psychologists. We've been using them as if they have a clear meaning, but but when you have something like a large language model, it really challenges to, uh, challenges us to come up with some deeper uh, basis for which we can judge these whether these words. And you know, it, it's uh, again, I think that the uh, we, we we rather than argue about it, which we like to do, uh, it, it'd be much better to focus on on uh, trying to really understand how these large language models uh, are accomplishing you know how how to how how to what's going on inside that allows them to to respond and talk and 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 to uh you know at least give some uh semblance of what we you consider uh human sentience. But I, I I don't think it's human, right? It's not a human, it's, it's some other kind of uh, sentience. Maybe it's li- just, and by the way, the same argument comes up, are animals, uh, you know, d- are, are they conscious, right? D- do they have the same consciousness as humans or what kind of consciousness do they have? I mean, it, it, a lot of people argue about that and, uh, you know, different types of intelligence. Again, you know, this is something that we need to r- really explore in greater depth.
1: Thank you, Terry.
9: Uh,
3: next question is for Johannes. Uh, so Johannes, in, in your talk, you strongly made the uh, the argument that we need to get back in the field and and your own work and, you know, incredible breakthroughs, you know, come from being in the field. You know, the question has to do with what new technologies are coming down the pike to, you know, help us get more information in the field, finding, extracting and analyzing fossils. You know, you talked toward the end of your talk, You you mentioned geospatial science and using those technologies to help us. You know, know where to go and 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 how to proceed. Can you get a little more specific? What technologies do you see coming uh, online that are gonna gonna make the difference in the field? When
10: I talk about geospatial um, innovations and new discoveries in those areas, the way they can help us uh, in the field is actually by giving us better opportunities to locate new sites. Uh, because in history, if we go back in time to like seventies and eighties most of the survey and exploration was actually done on, you know, ground check, which sometimes you end up in areas where there are no fossils and so forth. But now, even Google Earth could actually lead us into, like, you know, good places where we can actually do uh, field, expl- survey and exploration. So when I say new technologies in geospatial sciences, um, it has to do with, like, the way we document uh, our discoveries in the field, especially in, like, you know, Locating where we're finding those fossils, and you know, uh, also identifying like fossil, fossil, what could be po- po- possibly possible for sites from like you know, non-fossil sites that are just volcanics and so forth. So we we now have better uh, approach in terms of how we can distinguish different lithological aspects, you know, in the field. So it kind of reduces um, the amount of time and energy we spend to actually locate sites. Um, and that's, that's one advantage that we have. But in terms of like the documentation is something that has been revolutionized, um, because of all this new technology that we have in QGIS and other, uh, methodologies of like stratigraphic identifications and so forth. So those are what are helping us in terms of like identifying new places. But what I really wanted to emphasize was that because of all these technological advances we've made in the last you know two decades or three decades, uh, we've been able to look at new sites. But again, the problem now is how do we get there and how do we survey and explore these new sites and what I really wanted to emphasize was like we're now not looking too much into like new discoveries in the field and because it's really expensive, right but what I'm trying to say is, like, unless we do survey and exploration, make new discoveries, we're not going to still fully understand our evolutionary history. And Anne mentioned about ancient DNA, right? And we do need additional ancient DNA data. So where do we get those new data, right? We need to make new discoveries. And I think All of this new um, discoveries in geospatial sciences is actually helping us find uh, sites much easier than uh, we were able to about 30 years ago. So those advances are something that are really encouraged, but then the ground truth is always going to be like part of that fieldwork that we need to uh, keep supported. That that was the point that I was
3: trying to. Thank you. Can, can I ask just a quick follow-up question to push a little bit more on the technology? So you, you pointed to precision mapping obviously is, is very helpful, um, but what about new discovery technologies, things like hyperspectral imaging, things like ground penetrating radar, you know, sort of force multipliers for the individuals in the field? Uh, what do you see coming in, in as far as technologies for discovery?
10: Well, I believe there are some technologies already because uh, there has been some some technology to actually locate uh, some um, ancient bones like in um in Asia, I believe, a long time ago. But we haven't we haven't used that technology in any of the paleontological sites in Africa. Um but honestly, would it be really fun to actually use those and find fossils than actually going out there and finding the fossils yourself? That's that's a different story. But Again, that technology doesn't exist yet for the kind of work that we do. But I wouldn't be surprised if those kinds of technologies were developed and we use them in the field to, to find uh, fossils. The, the the only problem is, even if you have like such an instrument to identify fossils buried under underground, would they still be able to distinguish between what is a human ancestor fossil versus, you know, uh, a gazelle or things like that? And I don't think. We're that close to that kind of
1: technology yet, but it
10: would be great to have those
1: kinds of
3: technology. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, then machine learning on the back end, but then, yeah, that's a lot to come together. All right, thank you so much.
1: Uh, Pascal, could you expand on anthropogeny's relevance to today's society? And do you see a place for philosophers, specifically philosophers of mind, language, or science in anthropogeny? Huge question. Do I have half an hour or how much I
2: have? so i start with the end of the sentence. Yes, I, I think all science is, is, is philosophy and, and we need good philosophers. I think one of the problems with our, you know, historically, the understanding of how humans tick uh, had to do with, you know, ill-informed philosophers who, like Hume, would say that we're all selfish brutes who lived short, miserable lives or like Rousseau tried to believe in some wonderful past where everybody was fantastic. All you have to do is make a wonderful, just society and then everything is hunky dory. So I, I think one of the big promises of people who study, who do comparative psychology, um, studying behavior of non-human primates, other highly social animals uh, and study different human societies, um, is that we we come to understand that humans are both incredibly selfish and incredibly altruistic that we have these astonishing capacities to cooperate not just in groups but in groups of groups but the downside is we often do so in order to compete with other groups of groups so i think that one of the promises of anthropology is is that it it might provide some slightly more realistic insight in what humans are in the worst and the best and boy, do we need that to address you know global challenges that we face right now. And so I, 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 you know, I I think we won't be able to do that without philosophers of all
3: of all these specializations. Thank you. Thanks, Pascal. Next questions for, for Robert Glunder. Uh, so, Robert, you talked about um broader application of linguistics. Um, and the question is, can you can you tell tell me more? You know, what can you say? What questions do you have in mind where um linguistics could be applied more broadly? You know, what sort of application specifically are you thinking about?
4: I think there's like a good story to be told for um the evolution of arbitrary symbolic reference um that could be pulled out of animal ritual. Um, That actually was proposed long ago um, by um, Robert Brandon and Norbert Hornstein um, in biology and philosophy in like 1986, um, sort of referring back to um, Edmund Wilson, and I think Lorenz also, um, where you can you can see how animal behaviors start to move away from um, their home domain where they're actually functional, where they start to get um, um, where they're that sort of transported into a different behavioral domain, particularly in courtship um, domains where the behavior is no longer functional. Um, And so it starts to move away from its original um, mapping onto a a real-world function. So that's one thing that I think could be investigated. another one is, um, and this goes back actually to Panini, who was well, probably the first one to talk about this. What we call in linguistics semantic roles, and that has to do with the argument structure of a predicate. So, um, you know, what's the agent or the actor? What's the undergoer or the patient? Um, what's the recipient? Um, the instrument? Uh, source goal? So and so forth. And then the question is, how do those things map onto syntactic positions? Which is called the linking problem in linguistics. And that's actually a, a actually fraught proposition, because as you can see, in a s- simple sentence such as, you know, I gave Pascal the book, Pascal is the direct object, but if I say I gave the book to Pascal, now it's the object of a preposition. And there are a va- variety of alternations of predicates like that um, in across languages. Um, and so that problem is difficult. And I have my suspicions, and this is one of my crazier ideas, um, that we um, can actually again look to animal ritual possibly for sources for that, because particularly in um, what I will call, for lack of a better term, social sexual um, relationships, particularly in primates, um, these are negotiated interactions that are ritualized. They're not functional. Um, and there's a basic decision of like who's doing what to whom in this thing. Um, and there are a variety of things that go into it. It's not just dominance hierarchy, um, determined. Rather, there are also, um, issues of coalitions, um, status, you know, with baboons in particular, whether they're harem leaders or not, or whether they're older or younger. So all these things go into this calculation of like who's going to take the active role, who's going to take the passive role. Um, so I think there's some sort of, precursor for the kinds of problems that we see in linguistics in the, the linking problem. And in general, just point out that, um, you know, a lot of what we do with
3: language is pretty ritualized behavior in the first place. Yeah, Very thought provoking, because I, you made the point in your talk that, that language is an accept, is the suggestion, that it's an acceptation of human ritual, but from animal ritual, what other acceptations arise? It's uh, very fascinating. Thank you.
1: Evan, um, are there any known examples of increased copy number variation that cause the reproductive or fitness advantage?
5: Yes, I was thinking about this, and probably the best example of this is on the Y chromosome. Uh, About half of the genes on the Y chromosome, and there's not many of them, are part of gene families that have expanded uh, to high levels. And we know, based on infertility studies in men, that if you have reductions or deletions of those gene families, you actually have... uh, Infertility issues. I think maybe in a more broader sense, you can think of examples like increase in the amylase locus, which allowed us to adapt to starch-rich diets. Uh, That's something that's been reported decades ago, and it seems to hold. Um, This is an example of a human increase. Uh, Even the bola two example that I talked about in my in my in my talk, that's an example where we actually were asked by reviewers to estimate what the selection fitness would have been, knowing that that actually predisposes to, micro, to microdeletions associated with autism, and it's an order of magnitude greater than what you'd expect for neutral. So we there's good examples of increased copy associated with um, increased fitness. I guess the one thing to caution, maybe there's two cautions. Uh, one is many of these gene fam- families have reached an optimum. It's not like just increasing copy number is always a good thing. And so I can think of an example like defensins, which are very variable and they reach certain levels. When they get too high, they predispose to psoriasis and problems with sepsis in humans, right? So too much is not always good enough or a good thing. So there's an optimum. So you can think of these like accordions where they they kind of set, maybe adapting to the environments and, you know, they can expand and contract at certain, at certain levels. Uh, the other caveat. And, and this is an important point, increased copy doesn't always mean more expression. And so you can have many copies of a gene and still have similar levels of expression to some of them as reduced levels, but you just have more genetic copies of it. And so a, a real classic example of that is like the red, green cone color pigment genes that allow us to detect wavelength. We have men on their X chromosome have large numbers of that copy number of variation. But it turns out it's only the gene that's most proximal to the promoter and it's and it's regulatory sequence which actually is expressed and so you can have five copies and still your first copy be a dud and you it doesn't have any advantage to having those extra copies so it's it's a complex relationship um i would say but there are clear examples of increased fitness in my mind at least with increased copy
3: okay thanks so much and and um sadly this will be our last question it's it's going to be for sarah tishkoff uh, just because we we're almost at time here. Um, Sarah, I'm just going to read this one because uh, this is, I want to say it exactly right, and this is not my field. I'm a biochemist. Okay, so you suggest that Khoisan are not rooted at the base of the African tree, but what about the old koisan skeleton uh, from an individual without introgression with the bantu? It seems to suggest a very deep root, almost half as far back as the endosal branch from our own lineage.
0: I think they're referring to a study of ancient DNA from a sample from South Africa, I believe, that was probably about 2,000, 2,500, I think, years old. And the idea was, um, because there's no uh, integration or no admixture with with Bantu uh, populations at that time, that maybe it gives you a better sense of what the true evolutionary history was. And they inferred this very ancient time to most recent common ancestry. Um, and other other studies have shown that as well, and I think there's a couple of things that I note. One is that I do believe that when you study enough of the modern human genomes, um, the particular ones we studied have very limited amounts of admixture with Bantu, and they're very informative when you have good quality, high coverage modern genomes, and you're looking across individuals across the genome, I think there's still a lot of power there, but the other critical thing is that we used um, modeling approaches that took into account things like admixture or migration between populations and changes in the population size going back in time and also looking at inferred population divergence. It's only when you consider these more complex models that you see the rainforest hunter-gatherers and the Khoisan being a sister clade that we think descended from a population ancestral to all other modern humans. And I think then it's showing you that not only is the the data important or the the type of um, uh, genomic information that we gather, it's how you analyze it. It's developing better computational approaches that can infer more complex histories. And I'll also be honest, I think that we still haven't captured it. I think the, com- the demographic history of Africa is so complex, there's a lot more to be known. And different data sets might show you slightly different things, so I can't wait to to hear more about what others discover.
3: Great, thank you, Sarah. On that hopeful and and forward-looking note, uh it's a wrap uh, you know thank you all in, in, incredibly interesting talks and uh, and the discussion uh, to follow um you know the the breadth of disciplines that we've just bounced back and forth from is just amazing there's nothing like carta i'm a rookie at carta this i'm i'm now co-director of, of carta this is my first carta event and uh, really enjoyed being with all of you just want to thank all of our incredible speakers uh, you know for their very informative presentations my my co-chair caterina uh, semendafieri on behalf of all of CARTA and the Carter leadership team, I want to thank all our special supporters that made this symposium possible, the CARTA patrons, uh, Ingrid Bernerska-Perkins and Gordon Perkins, uh, Don and Natalie Handelman, Elizabeth Lancaster and Eli Schefter, our CARTA friends, uh, John Starling, uh, Donald and Carolyn Stewart, our CARTA supporters, Mary Fitz, Karen Matthews, uh, Christopher uh, Hronig. Uh, thank you so much. Without your support, we could not have had this event. We also could not have had this event without our incredible Carta staff uh, that organized this, pulled it all together, our colleagues at the San Diego Supercomputer Center, the remarkable, remarkably professional UCTV uh, team. Uh, there were over 300 registrants for this event today. Uh, not bad. Uh, and I can just say that, you know, this symposia, like all past symposia, will live on online on the Carta link from the Carta website. The Carta uh, past symposium have had over 40 million online views so it's the gift that keeps on giving thank you again speakers and participants um so that's it for this time but we're looking forward to joining you next time uh with the next card event which will also be an online symposium on march 3rd 2023 i think you got a taste of this from terry sanofsky's talk uh today Uh, The the, uh, topic for the March 3rd online symposium is going to be artificial intelligence and anthropogeny. And then I'm happy to say uh, we come back in person for the first time, back in person on May 19th, 2023, uh, in the auditorium. That's a picture of the auditorium at the Salk Institute. Uh, Salk and UCSD are, of course, co-partners in Carta. Uh, where the title of that event will be The Role of Myth in Anthropogeny. So, you know, stay tuned for what comes next. Uh, Check out the Carta website. Uh, You can all go back and review some of what you heard today as well as previous symposia. Uh, We're going to see you next time.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.